Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Uh, we'll just read on through verse 23 and 24 as well. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly and I pray God uh, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithless he that calleth you who also will do it. Here in this passage, we've received a whole lot of imperatives and commands for the Christian life. But we have also seen that the motivating factor has always been and always will be the fact of who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and the fact that Christ is coming again for His people. The very fact that Jesus could come today should be a motivating factor to get out of bed, to gather with the saints, to sing with their whole heart, to study the Word of God with all of our might, and to surrender to Him uh, with, with all, all faith, with all trust, uh, the fact that Christ is coming, that is the assurity of it, should strengthen our hearts, should motivate our hearts to His service, should motivate our hearts to do what this passage has told us to do, which deals with everything from in the life of the church to in our personal Christian lives and walks as well. And we have talked about the past few weeks how your private Christian life and your public Christian life go hand in hand. They are not as separate as we often think. And here's one of the issues, just talking to someone a little, little bit ago, uh, about the impact of our testimonies is that there are folks who claim to know Christ but yet live a life of hatred or bigotry or hypocrisy and are driving people away from the truth of the gospel. They look at us and they think, well, they're all fake, they're all phony, they're all hypocrites, they're all Pharisees. If they're living that way, then their book, their Bible, their, their faith must not be real at all. So why would I need what they have? And here's the thing we've got to understand. You and I possess something that the world does not have, that the world does not fully understand, but yet we cannot understand uh, according to the Bible. But what we find is that we are to live a life of genuine faith. Now, the fact that Jesus is coming should drive us not to a hypocritical or a pharisaical way of life, but rather to a life of genuine, faithful living. We need a genuineness. We need a, a trueness about our life. We need to be real, to be what we are who we are in Christ. And now as we're going to look today, we're going to see in verse 19, uh, Paul is starting to get now into the public life of the believer, but this stems from the private life. And we find that our private life prepares us for our public life, and our public life drives us back to our private life. Now you will spend much of your life, and the vast majority of it more than likely, in your private life. Now, you'll spend a lot of time at home. You'll spend a lot of time in your own mind. You'll spend a lot of time without people around. But yet we find that we have the Lord himself who is very much with us. So we are truly never alone. And therefore, because of this, it should motivate our hearts that in those times of private, in those times where no one sees us, in those times where no one else is around, that it should drive our hearts all the more to want to trust the Lord, to want to walk worthy of the calling of which he's called us to, to walk worthy of our salvation, uh, to walk in obedience and faith. Now, verse 19 starts with the next couple, really the next uh, three or four of these commands are some of the most difficult ones, not only for us to keep, but as well for us to deal with. There's many different folks who have different thoughts and beliefs about what these things mean and, and all this sort of thing. But nevertheless, we're going to look and, and see what the Bible has to say today. He starts off in verse 19, this is what we'll focus in and drop in on today, quench not the Spirit. Notice, first of all, even in our English, whether it's English or Greek here, what we're finding is that this is not dealing with 
our inner spirit, meaning our connection with God, as we'll see down in verse 23. This is capitalized. Why? What do you capitalize? You capitalize names and places. Well, this isn't a place. This is a name. This is a person. This is the third person of the, of the Trinity. This is the Holy Spirit of God who now indwells every believer that you and I who have been bought with a price are now become the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. Uh, so therefore, we are called to live our life unto the Lord, sanctified for the Lord, set apart and holy unto the Lord. Not just set apart and, and set and separated from the world, but set apart and separated unto God for His usefulness and for His glory. And now as we look at verse 19, to quench not the Spirit, there are a multitude of folks who will look at this and they will think it means a multitude of different things. But we want to see what the Bible has to say and deal with the word quench here. Now the verb out, uh, to put out or to quench here, is the proper word for putting out a fire. Uh, Richard just got back from a, a fire convention. They didn't go and make fires, but they looked at all kinds of stuff that helps you put out fires. Now, here's the thing that we need in our churches. We do not need to know how to put out a fire. Now, let me say this differently. We need to know where our fire extinguishers are in the church in case of emergency. All right? But the biggest thing that we'll do if we have a fire, uh, find an exit sign and then find Richard. All right? He'll take care of it. All right? Uh, he'll, he'll find one of our fire extinguishers. we got one in the sound room. There's a bunch of other ways. But spiritually speaking, here's what we've got to understand. Us good old Bible believers do not need help in putting out fires. You and I are good at, at, at starting fires that aren't good. We start wildfires with our tongue. But here's the thing. When we think about the fire, we think about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost as a flaming tongue, if you will, uh, this idea of even God Himself who is, calls Himself a consuming fire, a jealous God who shows Himself in the, uh, in, in the fiery furnace. He walks with them uh, there at, at the bush that is on fire but yet not consumed. He speaks to Moses. Uh, we find as well that He leads His children by night in the wilderness by fire. Fire is important. We also find that the Holy Spirit and fire go very much hand in hand. We talk about revival fires. We talk about all sorts of these things that, in sort of reference to a purity, a, a purifying into things that are often good. So what he says here, Morris goes on, he says, it is an appropriate word to use of the Spirit, whose coming was with what seemed to be tongues of fire, Acts 2, 3, Matthew 3, 11, and who brings warmth and light to the Christian life. Fire is a good thing, right? The thing about this. Fire, if it's used wrongly or if it gets out of control, can easily be bad, right? We see this with Hawaii right now. Uh, it can destroy homes. It can destroy land. It can destroy people. But yet we also find that you and I, uh, for, for many years, have used fire. What do we use fire for? We use it for light. We use it for heat. We use it for cooking. And those three things are awfully important, aren't they, right? Uh, we're even now starting to think, think about the future of, of you know, the, the coming in the winter and all this stuff. We want to make sure that we have heat. We want to have light. We want to have these things. Now, you're not going to start a fire in your living room, and I don't recommend that. Uh, but you're going to find ways to keep heat. Why? Because it's important. Now, what do we find? The Holy Spirit of God is the light for us that leads us and shows us Christ according to the Word. We find where the Spirit is at work, the Word of God is at work, because the Spirit works through the Word of God. And so we find that the Holy Spirit is always showing us Christ through the very Word, the very breathed out Word, the Word that He inspired Himself uh, and wrote through uh, Paul here as he writes to the church at Thessalonica. And so we find that the Holy Spirit is our light that points us to Christ, that points us to the Word. He is also the heat of our life. The hottest part about your Christian life is not your faith. It is the faithfulness of God. And so what we find is that the, the greatest thing that you and I must depend upon and the, the, the source of heat, the source of life, 
of the Christian is not ourselves, but it is the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. This is why Jesus told His disciples, and they could not understand it, He says, you're going to be better off that I leave you and that I send a comforter to be with you. They're going, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? One, we don't, where are you going, right? Wherever you go, we're going. And, and he's like, no, you're not, right? But what we see is that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to be a flame and a fire within the heart of the believer. This is why you and I, we schedule and we have these times of, of revival meetings to sort of, if you will, and you hear it oftentimes, probably every revival, you hear you know, that first day or so of revival talking about we need to fan the flames again or stoke the coals, right? You know, stoke the fire, right? Get it going again, right? Now, um, that's true. It absolutely is. But now what Paul says here is not a positive one that he has been saying thus far as far as the commands. Notice in the positive tense he's been saying, rejoice, pray, give thanks. Those are all very positive things. Now here he says, don't quench the Spirit. Now that's a different sort of command, isn't it? Here he's not saying, uh, do something positive, but rather he's saying, don't do this negative, which we're going to see here. Uh, now, this idea of quenching the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit does not mean, as Butler writes, that God is so weak that you can stop Him, but it means to take yourself out of the place of blessing. It is not that God can't. It is that God won't when you quench the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit involves any action that hinders the work of the Lord in your own life or the life of others. I'm afraid for most of us as Christians that we think that when our Christian life is being hindered, we blame the devil first, because he's an easy target, we go, well, it's the devil's fault that I feel the way I feel. Most of the time, the way we feel, the reason why we feel the way we feel is because that's the way we feel. It's our very own thought. It's our very own life. It's our very own lack of, of faith and trust in the Lord. And then we want to blame the world, or we want to blame somebody else who done us wrong, right? And there's always plenty of examples of those. We very rarely want to take any sort of responsibility on our own. We, notice this, with our Christian life, we make everyone else responsible for how we feel as a Christian. As a Christian, we often make the responsibility of how good we're doing as a Christian based on everyone else around us, and not so much us. We, we don't take that responsibility as seriously as we ought to. And here's what we've got to understand. We must trust the Lord to do a work within us. And the, God tells us, even later on in this uh, chapter, as we read earlier, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Will do what? Well, he's going to complete his work of which he began. That's what Philippians 1.6 tells us. He who has begun a good work in you, right? he shall complete it. Uh, we, we are told uh, uh, by, in the rest of the New Testament, that uh, even from Paul's writings, that God is doing an inward work in our life. He is working in all circumstances, in all situations, and working in all things. So to quench not the Spirit, the idea is that the heat, the fire, if you will, of the Holy Ghost of God within your life and the life of the church, mind you, it's that we snuff it out. Well, how do we snuff it out? Right? How, do we, how do we quench the fire, if you will? I'm afraid that many times what we do in the church and in our personal Christian life is that what we do is we're throwing water on the fire of the Holy Ghost of God. Is that we're... we're, we're hiding our light under a bushel. We're, we're covering this up and, and we're suppressing the work of God in what all He has for us. I believe in not some sort of health, wealth, prosperity gospel that if you do A, B, and C, you'll get X, Y, and Z and uh, you'll get health, wealth, and prosperity from following these easy steps and throwing in your money and all these different things. But I do believe this, that for the believer that we have much more good for us that we're missing out on because we simply quench the Spirit. 
What does quenching the Spirit look like? I've given us some examples, and I believe contextually we can look at the examples that Paul gives. Already with these imperatives, clearly what is implied is that the way in which we quench the Spirit is this. Now let's work our way backward in this text, all right? Let's go back a verse. How do we quench the Spirit? He says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning uh, of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. First way that you can quench the Spirit of God is ingratitude, ungratefulness. The more ungrateful we are, I believe that we hinder the work of God in our life because I believe that we're hindering the blessing of God in our life because we refuse to see the blessing of God in our life. The more grateful we are, it seems as if we find the Spirit of God at work in our heart, at work in our church, at work in our life. But notice, when we're ungrateful, it seems we just go, well, where's the Lord? He's so far from me. You know what? Most of the time when we feel that way, that the Lord is far from us, it's because we are far from Him. Our heart is not grateful. Our heart is not searching Him. Our heart is not satisfied with the Lord alone. You go back another one. What else do we find? He says, pray without ceasing. You want to know another way to quench the Spirit? Stop praying. Well, we're even told in the Bible of how to pray. What are we told in the Bible? Ephesians 6 tells us this. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Why is that? It's because we need the Holy Spirit of God just to pray. Here's, here's what we have to do. We've got to learn this, and this, is, this takes time and maturing. We need to learn to pray about praying. We need to learn to pray through praying. How many of y'all ever get distracted while praying? I'm putting two hands up, right? Praying on a Sunday morning as a pastor is one of the most difficult things that there is. And I'll tell you, it's because there's a million different things that are in our mind. We're thinking about a million folks who we know have a million different needs. We're thinking about people that are, are um, wayward or aren't coming and that you're praying specifically for. And then, then what happens is in our minds, and you probably do this too, that you start getting the conversations in your mind or you start hearing the battles in your mind or now you're not even praying anymore. You're off and you're just thinking or you're not thinking and, and everything is just gone. What do we have to do? Do we stop praying there because we go, oh, well, it's just not working or it's just no use? No, rather we pray. Lord, help me to pray. Direct my mind. Direct my heart. You say, well, how often must I do that? Every time we get wayward in our mind to pray because the battle will constantly be there. Why? The devil would love, while he cannot take away your salvation, he can certainly take away your joy. He can certainly take away you from prayer. He can keep you distracted. And here's what happens is that we think everything else is far more urgent than prayer and thanksgiving. There is nothing more urgent in the Christian life than prayer and thanksgiving. And so what we find is that the less grateful we are, the less prayerful we are, the more we quench the Spirit of God's work in our life. We must be a prayerful people. Why? Prayer and gratitude are two of the first outward workings of faith. If you have trusted Christ and that you do trust Christ, it's going to lead you to pray, to communicate, and to commune, and to fellowship with Him. But then it's as well going to lead you to be grateful. Why? Because if you know Christ, you have every reason in the world to be grateful. And what we find is as we pray and as we're grateful, the Spirit of God, he, what does He do? He does a work in us and through us and, and allows us to be used uh, for the glory of God. What else do we find? This prayerlessness. But then He says rejoice evermore. This is the idea of we're to be a people filled with praise, that the praise of God should be ever upon our lips and our hearts. A church and a Christian that is not willing and ready and able to praise God in all things, through all things, well, we're quenching the Spirit. Let me put it this way. <clears throat> when you just mouth the words to the hymn on Sunday morning, 
because you don't like the song or the beat or whoever's leading or whatever, right? You, you don't like that song that day or you're just not feeling it. Quenching the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we don't sing. We quench the Spirit when we don't pray. We quench the Spirit when we're not grateful. We quench the Spirit when we're not coming with a heart that is rejoicing even. You ever seen how you get a little bit close to the Lord when you start thanking Him and praising Him for things? You ever find that the, the easiest way out of the gutter and the separation of uh, uh, what it seems at least from the Lord, that the easiest way to find your way back to Him is to just start talking to Him and to praising Him for things? And it's the silly things that you start praising Him for to get your way out of it. Lord, I'm a miserable wretch, but thank You for this sofa. Thank You for this carpet, right? It's got a spot on it, but I got a carpet, right? Uh, Lord, thank You for, for the refrigerator. It makes awful noises at night, but Lord, it keeps my stuff cool, right? I mean, a million things, right? We find the, the blessing of God and we begin to praise Him for everything. And what does it do? It will immediately change the eyes and the heart and it will point us to Christ. It will show us who He is. It will lift our souls up to Him. And it draws us near to the Lord. But what we find is that when we don't do such, when we're praiseless, when we're prayerless, when we're unthankful, that we are quenching the work of God in our life. How about the next one? You go back another verse. See that, render, that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So when you go seeking your own vengeance, when you render evil for evil, someone does you wrong, so you do them wrong, plus one, just so that way you make sure you get a good shot in, right? What you find is that you are quenching the Spirit of God. And notice, we find all these things in our personal lives as Christians, but we also find all of these things in the, in the public life of the church. Now here's what we must understand. If someone does you wrong in the church, the easiest way to quench the Spirit of God in that church is to go ahead and get after them. It's to go ahead and to, they smite you on the cheek and, and you go ahead and you punch them in the nose. right? It's that they say something about you and you say something back. It's the sharp tongue. It's the, it's the ignoring of someone altogether. It's the disfellowshipping. It's the, the cutting of the eyes. These things quench the Spirit of God. You ever notice that if you've ever gone in as, as a preacher, I've gone into some churches, you go to preach for them or you go to visit for a, for a service to try to be a support. You ever walked into a church and it's just plumb dead? We don't want to admit it, but we've been in some churches sometimes or some services where it's just plumb dead. You ever wonder why? I believe it's because most of the time when you find a church that is dead, there is a rendering of evil for evil. There is folks who are much more interested in getting their way and not the way of God. And dead churches and in dead uh, Christians spiritually, if you will, and that's an oxymoron even. I mean, a Christian has life, everlasting life. We should not be dead in the way in which we live and feel and, and, and live our Christian life. Where we find that where we see those things, there's some stuff going on underneath the surface. There's ingratitude. There's prayerlessness. There's a lack of praise and trust of God. There's a lack of rejoicing. There's a lack of of simply forgiving, as verse 15 implies. Furthermore, we keep working backward. What do we find? You look at verse 13 down through 14. He says, And to esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake, and to be at peace among yourselves. Right? And now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. You want to quench the Spirit? You want to quench the Spirit? Here's how you do it. Don't warn them that are unruly. Don't comfort the feeble-minded. Leave them off to themselves. 
Don't support the weak. Let them grow weaker and more alone. Don't be patient toward all men. You'll quench the Spirit quickly. You and I say, well, we don't want to do that. I don't want to do that either. Matter of fact, I would say that for the most part, we, we often don't do these sorts of things. Very often, what, what normally shows up here in the life of Victory Way is not a quenching of the Spirit, but we want to make sure that before we ever walk in those doors, that our hearts and our minds, our bodies, our very soul is ready to meet with God and God's people. With hearts that are ready to rejoice and to pray and to sing and to give thanks so that we will not quench the Spirit of God. I can tell you this. If we want God to move, we've got to let Him move. Now what I mean by that is we don't give God permission to do anything. God does as He wills. That's what the Bible says. He's sovereign over all things. Now, understanding that though, we've got to understand is that He wants to move through us. He desires to move us. And our hearts should desire to be moved by God. Therefore, in order for that, we've got to get out of our own way. We've got to get out of our flesh and live by the Spirit of God by faith. And what we find is that we should not be stifling the work of God in a church, but rather we should be the ones that the work of God is happening through in the life of the church. We are the ones that God wishes to move through and to do His work in the local church. McDonald writes, to quench the Spirit means to stifle His work in our midst, to limit and hinder Him. Sin quenches the Spirit. Traditions quench Him. Man-made regulations and public worship quench Him. Now, those are the tougher ones. And this is why we've got to understand, we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Attempting to do spiritual things through fleshly means or motivations is quenching the Spirit both in the Christian and the church. We must make sure that our hearts are genuine before the Lord. And the easiest way to go about that is to be reminded that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. I do not believe for a moment that the Lord would love to come back and find His church quenching the Spirit. I do not believe for a moment that the Lord would love to come back and find His church preoccupied with the world and unoccupied with His work. I do not believe that the Lord would love to come back and find us fighting one another and not fighting the enemy. I don't believe for a moment that the Lord would love to come back and to find us in such a manner that He could have done much more with us, but we just wouldn't do it. We just wouldn't let Him. Verse 20, then says, Despise not prophesyings. First of all, and we'll get into this, prophecy here in this time, we have to remember that there is a period of time in the early church that there are still some signs and wonders. Ultimately, there are very few who had such, but the word prophecy goes back beyond the New Testament as well. It goes into the Old Testament. Now, when you think of a prophet, we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We think of uh, Nahum, right? That's everybody else's favorite, right? No, I'm just kidding. You think about the big ones that you can think of and you can remember. There's a whole bunch of prophets of God. And when you think of prophecy, what's the first thing you think about? You think about telling the future, don't you? Matter of fact, some of you might even think about some sort of crystal ball. Right? That's wizardry, that's witchcraft. We're not talking about that. A prophet in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, you know what they did? Their main goal was not foretelling, but forthtelling. Now there's the difference. Foretelling is predicting the future. Now when God opened up the mouth of many of these prophets in the Old Testament and predicted the future, 
many of those things have already come to pass, and if not, they will, right? But the Bible is full of prophecies. As a matter of fact, a third of the Bible is prophecy. We've got to understand this. What does this mean? One, foretelling. Two, forthtelling. This is the proclamation of the gospel. It is proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. It is opening up the book and letting it speak unto the people. That is what this is dealing with here. Despise not prophesying. Another way to put it today would be this. Despise not preaching. Despise not the preaching of the Word of God. Why? How does God build His church? Through the Word. How does He desire the Word to go forth? Out into the world and into the church. Or rather, into the church and then out to the world. Through the preaching of the Word. How do we know this? It's very simple. Paul talked about this at the very beginning of his letter to a church that was all sorts of messed up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. We need powerful preaching, but powerful preaching does not come from a powerful man. It comes from a powerful God. There's no such thing as a powerful preacher. There's no such thing as a powerful man of God. There is no power within any preacher whatsoever except the Holy Ghost of God Himself. What we need is not merely just an old-fashioned hellfire brimstone sort of preaching. We've got to understand that we need the whole counsel. We, we, we don't need uh, self-help. We don't need the, the philosophy messages of just trying to get us to think right and, and live good moral lives. We can say that for the universalist church. We can say that for the mainliners. But what we need is what has worked from the very beginning. It's what God has always used, and that is the foretelling of the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. We need preaching. As a preacher, get awful concerned with Christians that don't like preaching. Now, I, now hold on. Let me, let me, let me add a little, little note here. I don't get concerned when people don't like my preaching. I don't like my preaching either. I've heard my CD, I've heard CDs and the live streams by accident or when Miss Sharon is working on the on the CDs for the, the shut-ins and things and making sure everything's there and I hear my voice in the other room, I'm going, oh, oh man. Who would listen to that? Let alone come back again. The only person that I can think of would be my wife, and that's because she's married to me. The rest of y'all are just gluttons for punishment. But a Christian that doesn't love preaching, that's a frightening thing. Now, I hear an awful lot of, well, you know what? I, I just like teaching better than preaching. You know, Paul talked about that to Timothy, actually. He said in the last days, they're going to want teaching and not preaching. They're going to heat themselves teachers having itching ears. Why? Now, here's what we got to understand, and don't get me wrong here. Teaching has its place. That's what we're doing this morning. But teaching should have a preaching in it. And preaching should have a teaching in it. Teaching should be preached, right? It should come forth and it should not merely go to the head, but it should go to the heart. And that's what preaching aims to do. It merely does not change, want to, to change your, your, your mind or to change your behavior, but it desires to change your very heart of belief. Preaching is the hammer of God with the Word of God. It is what is needed. It is the power of God to change us from the inside out. But our preaching had better do some teaching in it. 
Preaching that does not teach us about Christ. Preaching that does not teach us about the Word of God. Preaching that does not teach the whole counsel of God. Preaching that teaches uh, that does not teach the context of a passage. Preaching that does not teach the difficult passages ain't preaching. It's just talking. Anybody can get up and give a sermon, but we need messages from God. That's this idea of prophecy, of preaching, of declaring, and foretelling the Word. Now, uh, one commentator writes, whether exercised and inspired teaching or in the, the predicting the future, despised by some as beneath tongues which seem most miraculous, therefore declared by Paul to be a greater gift than tongues, though the latter were more showy. Now, here's what we understand. In the early church, they still had at this point in time tongues, prophecy, different sign gifts. And what does Paul say over and over again? He says, it's better to desire prophecy or preaching than it is to desire the gift of tongues. Even Paul says, I could say thousands of words in tongues and nobody understand me. He says, but if I say a word for Christ and by Christ and with His authority, he says, that's what matters most. What we need is the truth of the Word of God and it must be foretold. It must be preached. It must be proclaimed. It is what God requires. It is what God desires. It is what God uses to get the job done. So we need preaching. We need a healthy diet of preaching. Uh, this is why I believe in ex expositional preaching, verse by verse. This is why we, we have, if you look at all four of our services that we have here in this room in a week, we've got Sunday school, which is going through verse by verse, 1 Thessalonians, Sunday nights through the Psalms, or, or in Proverbs, Wednesday nights going through Genesis, uh, Sunday mornings going through whatever the Lord is leading, but we're going to deal with the Scripture because outside of this Scripture, we've got nothing. We've got no hope. We've got no idea or knowledge of, to, know how to, to know God. And so it's, it must be from this book. It must be through the preaching of the Word. We need this. A Christian that says they don't need preaching is very frightening. It's like a Christian saying that they don't need the church. This is equally as maddening. Does a sheep survive on its own? No. Matter of fact, that's the one. If I'm a wolf, I'm looking for the lone sheep. I'm looking for the one that's on its own. You know why? They're an easy target. It's hard to go after the whole flock. And what we find here, is as we look at this, and we've got to wrap this up, and I know it, prophesying here. Despise not prophesying. We should not despise the means in which God uses to build His church. You can despise me and other preachers. I don't like half of them either. <laughs> but we had better not despise the proclaiming of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, there should be nothing more joyful to a Christian than to hear God's Word proclaimed. This is why I've tried to make it a point. The Lord had shown me this a while back, and I've tried to make it a point to mention it often, is that worship in the church does not end when the screen up there says preaching time, right? And then I walk up here, and everyone else that was up here walks down, and then I say, open up your Bibles. Worship does not stop there. Matter of fact, that's just the beginning of worship. We're here to gather, to be filled up by the preaching of the Word of God, so that we have 
things in our life that we can chew on, meditate on, and do something about throughout our week. Now, whether you come with a plate that's ready to be filled and whether you choose to partake of the food, I cannot control either one of those things. We've got to bring our own plate. We've got to bring our own heart ready to receive the Word of God, and we've got to be ready to feast on the Word of God. And every week ought to be a feast. That's why it's my job to be in that study to prepare a feast for this week because I won't want to give you what I can cook. I need to give you what God has prepared for us. That's what this is. And those things that God uses to build up His church and to bring His church together and to chip away the things in our life that need chipping away at, we should never despise, but rather we should wholeheartedly embrace what God loves. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll bring this to a close today. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. We're grateful for Your faithfulness. Grateful for Your Word. Lord, help us to, to not quench the Spirit of Your work in our life today. Lord, if anything today, may we see an extraordinary work in our hearts in the life of this church today that we would see and know Your presence, that we would experience Your power through the preaching of Your Word. God, that we would see Christ today. Lord, that we would love the things that You love, that we would love one another, that we would love Your Word, that we would love You today. God, I pray that You unite us together, protect Your church, protect us from the enemy, protect us from ourselves. And God, that You would do great and mighty things today. In Jesus' name, Amen.